here written in chapter 2, the book of Revelation. And you recall that in our study that so far that the divine outline of the book of Revelation is given to us in verse 19 of chapter 1. And it's important for us to know that uh, outline that is given to us is John was on the island of Patmos. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And in chapter 1, you recall that he heard a loud voice as of a trumpet. And he turned and he saw the glorified Jesus. And he gives a description there in chapter 1. His hair is white like wool, white as snow. His eyes like the flame of fire. His feet like fine brass. Uh, the voice that he had was like the sound of many waters. And he's standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And he's holding the seven stars in his right hand. And we know at the end of chapter 1, that it tells us that those seven lampstands represent seven churches there in Proconsular Asia. And the seven stars in his right hand is the seven messengers or the seven angels, that, that Greek word angelos, um, the messenger of those churches. And Jesus now is turning to each one of those seven churches as we go over this that um, John would uh, was told in verse 19, the outline of the book of Revelation, write the things which you have seen, that's chapter 1, and then write the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, that is the church things, the church age, and then thirdly, write the things which will take place after this, the Greek word metatata, and that's chapters 4 to the end of the book. Chapter 4 to the end of the book, chapter 22, it's all future. But Jesus standing in the midst of those seven lampstands, there's four applications that we talked about last week. They are seven literal churches there that existed in Proconsular Asia, that is that area of Turkey today. And um, they uh, had these characteristics that are described to us as Jesus writes a letter to them. Uh, so those are seven literal churches throughout Proconsular Asia. They're not the only churches, but these are seven churches that Jesus picks and he turns and he writes a letter, as we saw last week, to the church of Ephesus. And we saw that they were the working church. They were known for their labor, standing for truth, they, their patience. They uh, were ones that hit it hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Uh, Jesus commended them for that. And, and then uh, he said, but I have this against you, that you've uh, left your first love. So the application is this. There are seven literal churches. Second of all, uh, there are scholars that say that these seven churches represent seven successive periods of church history. Uh, the church of Ephesus, the apostolic age. We'll talk about the church of Smyrna here. I think we can make application for that. But these are seven kinds of churches that you can even see today. If Jesus was to write Calvary Chapel Greeley a letter, how would we fit into these seven churches? Are we like a church at Ephesus, that we're a working church, but we've left our first love? Are we like the church of Sardis? Uh, I don't think we are. The dead church, the church of Philadelphia, the faithful church, I hope we are. Or the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. So we can honestly look at these characteristics and we can say, hey, we have those same characteristics and, and Jesus is speaking something to us. But not only as a church, but also as a Christian. Am I an uh, Ephesian Christian where I'm so busy, uh, but I've left my first love? Or am I a Christian like Smyrna? We're going to talk about this persecuted or whatever the case 
may be. So that's why these chapters are so powerful as we make application, not only as a church, but to ourselves. And then there's a fourfold pattern that we see in these letters, and we'll continue to see tonight, that he says, first of all, I know your works. And then he gives, second of all, a positive affirmation that things that they were doing well, he commends them. This is what I commend you in. And then thirdly, he would give corrective exhortation, rebuke to them. Uh, Nevertheless, this is what I have against you, just as we saw with Ephesus. And then fourthly, he would give an eternal promise to them. So let's begin to look at uh, the persecuted church. To the angel of the church of Smyrna writes, this is the shortest of the letters that we have in chapters 2 and 3. Remember, this is Jesus here that is, is you know, uh, saying this. It should be all in red in your Bible. John is dictating it. He's writing it down. But these are the words of Jesus. And to the angel, the church of Smyrna. We know that Smyrna, this second church, uh, actually has a long history. It has a history, Smyrna, 2,000 years before Jesus, and it is a city that still exists today in Turkey. It's uh, Ishmir. It's the third uh, largest city in Turkey with about 300,000 people. It was located here in the first century, about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was a seaport city as well as, you know, Ephesus was. Ephesus had a large seaport, but so was Smyrna. They were a seaport um, city, and Smyrna was known for its beauty. Uh, When uh, Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire took over that region, it was Alexander the Great that wanted to make Smyrna the most beautiful city in the whole world. And of course, Alexander the Great would die at a young age. And it was one of his generals that would uh, make Smyrna a very, very beautiful, very, uh, you know, ornate city known uh, throughout the Roman Empire. It was claimed to be the glory of Asia. The pride of Smyrna was it was the birthplace of Homer. It was a great trade city, especially in wines. It was a wealthy city uh, and commercial, uh, known for its commercial, great commercial, uh, you know, activity that took place. And the name Smyrna, Smyrna means bitter. And it comes from the word myrrh. And, and many of you, you've heard of that word myrrh, and many of you know that it's a burial spice. The city was known for making myrrh, sweet-smelling myrrh. Uh, the Jews buried their dead with this uh, uh, myrrh that they would use. They didn't in, um, in you know, bomb the, the bodies like the Egyptians did. But myrrh was well known, uh, taken from a, a beautiful evergreen with white flowers. And then that myrrh, it would be crushed, the, the evergreen, the, the flower. And as it was crushed, it would give a sweet smell. And there's something here that um, we can learn from because here is a church that is being crushed. They're being persecuted. And it is like a sweet smell and aroma to the Lord. And as we go through difficulty, it's like a sweet smell and aroma to the Lord. So here, myrrh was a burial spice. The Jews, what they would do is they would take the body as they would get it ready for burial. They would anoint the body with burial spices, one being myrrh, of course. They would then wrap the body in a burial cloth and they would apply the spices, the myrrh, in between the folds of the cloth. 
we get kind of a little indication when we read John's gospel that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus prepared the body of Jesus for burial. And there you see that Nicodemus bought, brought the burial spices. It was Joseph of Arimathea that brought the linen uh, cloth. They had to hurry. Uh, they prepared Jesus for burial and put him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So one of the uh, interesting things, too, about Mers, we talk about it, that you might recall that uh, it tells us in Matthew's gospel, when the Magi came to worship Jesus uh, after the birth of Jesus, they brought three gifts, didn't they? And they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I find that interesting. How did they know to bring myrrh? So Smyrna was also known historically for its idol worship. And one of the things that they worshiped there is they worshiped dead emperors, Caesars, and current Caesars there. They were the leading city in um, you know, Caesar worship. They had a temple de Roma, which means the spirit of Rome. And what they did is beginning in about Tiberius, Tiberius ruled Rome during the, the ministry of Jesus up and, you know, just past uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. And that emperor worship, Caesar worship, Caesar is a title. Um, it's a title deity in Luke chapter 2 that it came to pass that Caesar Augustus made a decree that all the world should be registered. Uh, it, that wasn't his real name, Caesar Augustus. It, it was a title, Caesar, uh, divinity, the August one. And the, the emperor started taking on those titles to be worshipped. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar. But then that Caesar worship really began with Augustus, Tiberius, and really was a big deal at the time at the end of the first century with Domitian. So they, they had a temple there that was dedicated to, you know, worshiping the, the emperors, the Caesars of Rome. And then Smyrna had this golden street. It was very beautiful, apparently. Again, it was the, the glory of Asia. And they had all these different temples on that road, that, that um, golden street. They had temples to Aphrodite, to Zeus, to Apollos. And all these things are there in Smyrna. And as we continue reading, as he says to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, and these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear, verse 10, any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. In verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus here tells them, I am the first and the last, speaking of his eternal character, one who was dead and now is come to life. And it reminds the Christians, just as Jesus suffered, that he is alive. He rose, he lives. And because he lives, that they will go through suffering, they will be persecuted, they will be put to death, but they will live. And it would bring comfort as they would suffer persecution during this time. And he says, hold on and be steadfast. They cannot take away your eternal life. Now here's the thing. 
Oftentimes, when we talk historically about the Roman Empire, oftentimes, particularly as we go through the Gospels, that we're looking at it through the eyes of Jude, you know, Judea, through the eyes of Israel, the Jews, how they were oppressed. And particularly, uh, as we see that, they hated the, the Romans that ruled over them. Uh, the religious leaders hated it. The people didn't like it. They were taxed. So we've learned all that going through the gospel, the tax collectors that the people despised because they were working for Rome. So keep in mind as we read about that in the gospels and, and in the minds of the Jews and, and through the lens of, of Judea, there is a larger view of Rome by this time. As churches were established all throughout the Roman Empire and the churches growing in numbers, Rome at the end of the first century had built thousands of miles of roads and they were paved roads. Matter of fact, uh, we'll show you when we go to Israel, you know, cobblestone uh, remains of a Roman road that they had built. They were even lit up at night with, with torches, many miles of roads. Um, there was uh, many amphitheaters that were built, theaters that would seat tens of thousands of people. They had gyms all over, um, beautiful cities that were built. As you look at the ruins, the pillars, the, the, the large stones that made up the roadways, all these things. And Rome also got rid of all the pirates in the Mediterranean. There was so much commerce, there was trading, there economically, it was very prosperous. And families were doing very, very well throughout the Roman Empire at this time. It was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But we know that it was a forced peace. So in the eyes of the Jews, they hated Rome. They hated to be under the occupation of Rome. They rebelled against Rome. And of course, Jerusalem was destroyed over 25 years before this letter was written. But for many that were in the empire, remember this. It was the best of times. And most of the Gentiles in the Roman Empire submitted to Rome gladly. And Caesar wor worship would grow from the time of Caesar Augustus, as I mentioned, all the way to Domitian. And Domitian, if he brought you in front of him and you did not bow the knee to him, then you were put to death. They would force people to profess that he is Lord or else be killed. Now, it was more of, historians will tell you, kind of a political loyalty. You profess Caesar as God, Lord, and then they could care less if you went and wor worshipped other gods. As long as you gave your allegiance to Caesar first and you made a vow to Caesar. So there in Smyrna, they have this temple. 100,000 people are living in this city at this time, which was a large city for an ancient city. And the people there, the people would come from all over the Roman Empire to this city. They would go to that temple that was dedicated to the Roman emperors, to the Caesars. And what they would do going to that temple is they would get a pinch of incense. They would burn it on the altar. And then they would bow the knee. And they would say that Caesar is Lord. And what happened was there was somebody with a certificate making a record of this. And as they did, they were good. 
They made their allegiance to Caesar. There's a record of it in the Roman records there. They got a copy of it, and they were good. And then if they left that temple and go down the street and they worshiped at another temple or an altar, you know, to someone else, to another god, to Zeus, Apollo, you know, Aphrodite, that was no problem. It was no problem. And the Christians were the ones that said, we are not going to do that. And the Christians, which were small in number in Smyrna, they were despised because they would not pay tribute to Caesar. They didn't have a temple on that golden street. They were meeting in homes. And if you would have built a temple that was dedicated to Jesus in Smyrna, and you went and you burnt incense to Caesar first, and then go to that temple dedicated to Jesus and worship there, there would have been no problem at all. They would have been just fine with that. They would have cared less. They would not have bothered the Christians. And I bring that out because what is it that we are seeing today? What does that mean for you and me today? You and I are being told you cannot own Jesus as Lord alone. Who are you Christians to say that Jesus is the Savior of the world? That he is the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. That he is the way, the truth in the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Who are you to claim that? And you and I, as we say, I worship him alone... People are very offended by that. And it is going to come to a point where perhaps that's what's going to bring persecution to you and to me. That there are more that say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm also a Buddhist. Oh, I'm a Christian, but I believe that there's many ways to heaven. And, you know, we all believe in God. And there's this, you know, coming together in interfaith movement. Matter of fact, Probably, a lot of you missed this, but the Pope this week went to the Middle East to an interfaith conference. And there at that conference, the leader, you know, the Pope of other faiths, of Islam, Buddha, uh, Hinduism, all of that, had this conference where we can all come together and work together. And that's what the conference was all about. And there was a statement made by one of them. I had it upstairs and I forgot to bring it down. That said where it really gets dangerous is, you know, radical Islam and fundamental Christians. And I think, wow. What is it that we're going to see in the tribulation period as we go through the book of Revelation? What this book is going to speak about is that it's going to speak about a worldwide false church that will be on the scene in the tribulation period. A one world government, if you would. All that's going to be led by one who comes riding on a white horse in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. And this one called the Antichrist, who's an economic leader, a political leader, He's going to be a military leader. But listen, he's going to be a religious leader as well. 
And it's Revelation chapter 17 that tells us the woman riding the beast, the woman being this false church. The beast is initially is going to support this worldwide false church. The leaders of the world are going to say, yes, we support this. But then the Antichrist, halfway through the tribulation period, is going to turn and destroy that woman, that false church. And then he's going to go into the temple of God to be worshipped as God, as 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, and he will say that I am to be worshipped. And anyone who does not make their allegiance to me cannot buy and sell. There was something like that happening in Smyrna. Very important considerations for us to look at. And as we look at what's going on around this, there's a movement to put all religions under one roof, a universal church, to be all inclusive. Um, inclusive. And, and let's bring Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and New Age all together. And don't you Christians dare say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. There is more and more pressure, even as me as a pastor, it's been going on for a long time. Don't you dare, if you pray in public, don't you dare pray in the name of Jesus. Well, I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus. So this is a church that's being persecuted in a time of wealth and opulence, and they were crushed like myrrh. These Christians have turned their backs on the world, and they were paying a heavy price for it. And the church was pastored at this time by a man named Polycarp. Perhaps you've heard of him, read on him. At this time, this letter is written by Jesus. He is a young man, Poly, Polycrop. And we know that uh, he was a very godly man. Polycrop was known for his commitment, a man of prayer. Uh, as I mentioned, that these seven churches represent seven successive periods of church history. I think there's a case here for that. The church at Ephesus represents the apostolic church up in the first century. Smyrna represents the persecuted church from 100 A.D. to 300 A.D. And in that time, six million Christians were killed. They were martyred. This letter to the church at Smyrna is a favorite letter of those who are being persecuted today. It is very, very special. The promises that are given are very special to those who are being persecuted. And we have brothers and sisters in the world that are being deeply persecuted. North Korea, Christians there, they're in tunnels with little candles, whispering, worshiping the Lord very softly, because if they get caught, they're done. In China, in parts of the Far East, in Africa, in the Middle East. Do you realize that in the last century, in the 20th century, in the 1900s, more Christians were martyred than all the previous centuries combined? There are sources that say that 15 million Russians were killed in Russia alone in the 1900s. Now, here's the thing. If you take 6 million killed nearly 2,000 years ago and you compare it to today's population, to the population back then, the 6 million that were killed 2,000 years ago would be equivalent to 250 million martyred today. So 6 million is a huge number. Polycarp, when he becomes an elderly man, History tells us 166 A.D. he was martyred. His martyrdom was so famous that it encouraged the entire church of the Roman Empire. 
So much so that Tertullian, who was born and raised in Rome, he wrote about him, Polycarp. And, and in all these years, being the pastor of Smyrna, no doubt that that church was started by someone coming out, Paul's ministry out of Ephesus there uh, in, you know, uh, in the first century. It was established by one of those disciples. Polycarp would come along and be the pastor after that. And he ends up, when he's an elderly man, being a target of Rome. Just as John, who's an elderly man, is a target of Rome at this time. Well, the Christians, they took Polycarp and they hid him outside of Smyrna on a farm. They then took him to a second farm. When the Roman soldiers came to the first farm, they asked two young men that were there, where's Polycarp? And they wouldn't say anything, so they killed those two young men. They were martyred. They would eventually find him at the second farm, and as they went there, Polycarp was sleeping. Now, I think if I knew that Rome was coming at me, would I be sleeping? But he was sleeping, and the reason that he was sleeping, because the night before, it is written, that he had a dream, and he was told by the Lord that you're going to be burnt at the stake as a testimony to me. So he rested in that. He had a peace about it. When the Romans came, Polycarp, what he did is they, he fed them. He prepared dinner for them. And then he would say to them, would I pray only once more? And he prayed for over two hours. And then they took him back to Smyrna to have him be executed in the theater there in Smyrna. And those who took him pleaded with them, why don't you just say that Caesar is Lord? Why don't you do that? We'll give you your certificate and then you can go and pastor your church. We'll let you go. And he refused to do it. And then they turned him over to the governor and the governor asked them, pleaded with them, just say Caesar is Lord. Give a defense of yourself. And he refused to do it. And as he would then stand before the crowd in that theater, as he was tied to the stake, he even said, it is recorded, you don't need to tie me to this. I'm not going to run away. I'm an elderly man. He's in his 90s. A man that faithfully served the Lord for over 80 years. He said, you know, I'm not going to deny the Lord. Never. So he was tied to the stake. They put wood around him. They lit the wood. And as the fire grew, it's recorded that it formed a, an ark around him. An ark, a dome around him to where it wasn't hurting him. It wasn't burning him. So the people couldn't believe it. And finally, they sent a soldier with a long sword. And that soldier took a sword and he thrust it into the side of, of Polycarp and pulled it out. And so much blood came out, it says that it put out the fire. Well, they all went crazy in the theater. So they covered him with wood and set it on fire again. And it is told that the smoke that rose, you know, from the fire was white and it smelled of sweet incense as it rose. And so famous is his story of martyrdom that hundreds more that were killed in that same arena were strengthened and encouraged by Polycarp's testimony. And here's the Lord. He's writing to this church that is being persecuted. Tertullian would write because of Polycarp that the blood of the saints became the seed of the church. What does it mean for you and for me today? Listen, what if persecution comes? And we don't know of persecution that 
that comes to like those Christians in North Korea or maybe in the Middle East or in Africa and Sudan when I would uh, take a, you know, the couple trips I took there and listening to, you know, those guys in Sudan, what they went through is absolutely amazing. But we can still be persecuted. You know, Paul wrote that in the last days it will be perilous times and those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And many of you, you have gone through tribulation and persecution to some degree. Maybe your spouse left you. Maybe that your family has held you out at arm's length. Maybe those at work have hated you and old friends. That we all go through it to one degree or another. But the question is, are we going to stand firm for the testimony of Jesus Christ? And we are going to be called to do that more and more in the day in which we are living in. And I think that all of us have a determination that we've got to decide, are we going to stand for Jesus Christ or are we going to pinch the incense and burn it to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, and then I'll go do my Christian thing and I'll go to church and do Bible study and all of this. Rather than saying that I will stand by my Lord alone and I have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That I have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know, a good book that's in the bookstore is The Jesus Revolution by Greg Laurie. And it talks about how the Jesus movement came out of the 60s. Very well written. It talks about the culture and the, the hippies that were going to San Francisco and getting lost. And, uh, and it's a very good read and how God worked, how he, he worked through Pastor Chuck and, and those, those you know, hippies that got saved that has changed the world. And then writing how in our culture today, what we see, how God can move and work in the same way. And I really believe that God can. I, I believe that there can be another Jesus movement, a, a great awakening, a pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. That's what I pray for in these last days. Because listen, just as those hippies were going to the ocean, going to San Francisco, they were lost. They, they were taking drugs. They, they thought they were free. And it ended up to where they were in bondage. And they realized that we are lost. And so many of them were coming to Christ. And we see that with young people today. It seems so hopeless. And people today are really going through it and they're in bondage to the things of the world. And they don't know what you and I know. That true freedom comes by living for the Lord and being surrendered to Him and walking with Him and experiencing that abundant life. And I pray that we would always stand with the Lord. And I believe that one of the possibilities, if there's an outpouring of God's Spirit in these last days, that it could very well come through persecution. It could very well come through persecution. Listen, things have changed a lot since I've pastored this church. And, you know, the things that come across my desk and the emails and stuff, I'll tell you what, we're on the front lines. And it is getting harder and it is getting more difficult. And it will for you. It will for you, mom and dad, if you say, I'm going to raise my children in the ways of the Lord. It will be for you, young person, if you say, listen, I'm living for Jesus and I'm not going to compromise. And I'm not going to adopt what culture says. And those questions get asked all the time and we talk with people. And, and I'll tell you what, it is changing very, very fast. 
And I believe people are looking for answers. And if there's revival, it can very well come out of persecution that happens to us. The things that we see. And they were going through it in Smyrna. And he says to them, I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know your tribulations. And if you're going through tribulation because of some kind of persecution, because you're living for the Lord, he says to you that I know your tribulation. I know what it is that you're going through. And as you're going through it, remember, it's like a sweet smell and aroma to him. As the pressure comes, as maybe you feel crushed, those at work are coming down on you and, and, and are hard on you or family or whatever the case may be for you. He says, number one, I know your tribulation. Second of all, I know your poverty. They were poor. They were the outcast of Smyrna. And without that certificate that they had and that allegiance they made to Caesar, they couldn't get work. And they, you know, were ones that um, they were destitute. They didn't have Lexus chariots. The Greek word here indicates that they had nothing. Rome took it away. They lost their homes. They lost their jobs. If, if you turned in a Christian, you could, it is believed, keep part of their possessions. It was a little incentive program. Here's a Christian. He hasn't gone down and bowed the knee to Caesar. Let's report him, and then you would get part of what they had. But they didn't have anything. They had nothing. You know, it's interesting. I think about the prosperity theology that is so popular in our country today, and it grieves me. And here Jesus says, you may have poverty, but to me you're rich. You are rich. And when we get to the seventh church, the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, we're going to see that Jesus is going to say, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and you have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He, Jesus is not saying that being rich is, is that what it means for you, but they weren't rich towards God. And so much of what we hear today in the American gospel is about God is about kind of like you put in your request in a slot machine and pull the lever and see how much you get. And about prosperity and what's in it for me. And it's sad. The church had a desire for the Lord to love him and serve him. Even in difficult times. And the Romans took everything away from them. They were physically poor. They didn't have two dimes to rub together. But Jesus says, you're rich. And it reminds me of churches that are throughout the world that are persecuted, that they don't have anything. They don't even have a roof over their heads. And the Lord looks at them and says, you are rich. You are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those, verse 9 goes on to say, who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. You know, tribulation, persecution can come from those who claim to be religious. That's what we're going to see in the tribulation period. And that's what I perhaps we're going to see in these last days. We're religious. We're religious. Jesus was persecuted by who? Religious men, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Jesus knows the abuse that these Christians were enduring at the hands of religious men. 
In verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer, a message for all of us and whatever we're facing. Jesus says, don't fear, stop being afraid, you know. Uh, focus on me who is eternal, who was dead and now alive. Uh, that is how we stop being afraid to get our eyes on Jesus. But this tells me something because sometimes I think those who are persecuted, I, I'd listen to the testimony of those guys in Sudan. I think, man, you guys are tough. You guys are super Christians. Kind of like I hear about Polycarp and his testimony. It's, you know, chin up and stiff upper lip and all of this. But I think that they had fear in them. They had fear in them. Otherwise, Jesus would not have said, stop being afraid. Even Paul the Apostle, who was no lightweight, that he was told when he was in Corinth, Paul, don't be afraid. Why was Paul told that? Because he was afraid. And the Lord desires to take our fears and to cast them on him and to turn those fears into peace and rest in him. And in verse 10, indeed, the devil's about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and you'll have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Satan hates the church. And according to Jesus, the persecution against the church here coming from Satan, Jesus said that, that you will have, you know, this, this uh, tribulation for 10 days. What does that mean? We don't know exactly what that means. Some commentators see this as 10 Roman emperors who would put the church through persecution. Others have said, well, it refers to 10 short periods of, of time of persecution throughout the church age. Um, we don't know for sure, but some of you will be thrown into prison. Usually you were thrown into prison while you awaited trial and execution. And Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Notice that Jesus does not give a word of rebuke or correction to this church. There's only one other church that he doesn't give rebuke or correction. That is the Church of Philadelphia, the faithful church. He says, you're going to have the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. The Roman athletes would get a crown that leaves when they won an event. And Jesus given a promise to these Christians, I'm going to give you a crown that's going to last forever. Eternal reward. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is for all of us. And he who overcomes, remember what an overcomer is? 1 John 5, 5. He who overcomes is one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, shall not be hurt by the second death. It was Jesus that said, don't fear those who can kill your body, and after that have no power over you, but fear him who, after the body is killed, has the power to cast your soul into Gehenna. Jesus saying words of comfort and hope to these Christians at Myrna that you will not be hurt by the second death. What is that? We are going to read about the second death in Revelation chapter 20. After the millennium reign of Christ, when Satan is finally once and for all cast into the lake of fire, then there's going to be this great white throne judgment where all the unbelievers are going to be judged each according to his works. Listen, you do not want to be judged according to your works. Jesus took the judgment for you and for me. We cannot work for our salvation. And there are people that talk to you and me and they say, well, I'll stand before the Lord and I'll take my chances. And I think, how foolish. Or when I stand before the Lord, I got a few things to say to him. Or I've been a good person and, and it's outweighed my bad and I'll be okay. You don't want to be judged according to your works. Because all of our works, remember Isaiah declared her as filthy rags before the Lord. And those found written you know, not in the book of life, is going to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. That's the second death. 
as John writes there in Revelation chapter 20. Eternal separation and damnation is real. And you see, Satan will try to get people to think, well, there really isn't hell. Through false doctrine, through ignorance of people, apathy. You know, perhaps you've heard guys say, well, when I go to hell, it's going to be me and all my friends, and we're going to have a big party down there in hell. And I think, really? But unfortunately, there are even those popular writers and that are Christians that claim to be Christians that say, well, there's no hell, there's annihilation, or there's no eternal separation. The Bible makes it very clear, Revelation does, that there is a final resting place for those unbelievers called the lake of fire, where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth forever. I think about Luke chapter 16, where Lazarus, and the rich man and Lazarus went to that place of the unrighteous dead. And he's calling across that canyon to, you know, um, the, the rich man went there. He's calling across to Abraham and, and to Lazarus. Lazarus who died and went to Abraham's bosom. He was poor. He was out there outside the rich man's, you know, uh, door in the Dogs were licking his sores, and he dies. The rich man dies. He goes to that place of the unrighteous dead, and he sees Lazarus over there, and the rich man yells over, and he says, Abraham, send Lazarus over here to dip his finger into some cool water to touch my tongue. I'm such in torment, and I think I can't imagine being that way for all eternity. Where you just touch his finger in some water and touch my tongue. And we have a message to give to others that you don't have to go there because Jesus came and died for you and he loves you. And it is real. And you and I as Christians, may we understand that and stand for the truth of the gospel because when Jesus Christ, listen, when he comes back and he establishes his kingdom and he's on the throne, it's not going to be Confucius and it's not going to be Buddha and it's not going to be Muhammad and it's not going to be some new age guru that's going to be sitting on the throne with him. It is Jesus alone and every tongue and every knee shall bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That he proved that he's the son of God as he died for us and he conquered sin and death and rose from the grave. Listen, don't ever compromise because you and I are going to be told to and a lot of pressure put on us to compromise, to be inclusive, to say, oh, you know, whatever you believe is fine with you. And heaven and hell are real. And the gospel is real. And may we share that with others. He says, you're not going to die to second death. There's going to be heaven that awaits you. And there is going to be the lake of fire that's going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing the teeth. Now, you've heard the saying... You know, the, the second death. If you're born twice, that is physically and then spiritually. You're only going to die once. That is physically, unless the rapture happens, then we don't even have to go through that physical death. And that's what I'm praying for. But if you're born only once, 
then you're going to die twice. You're going to die physically, and then you're going to die spiritually. And that's what the truth of God's word says. But we want to be able to give the hope of the gospel to others, that there is heaven that is real available for you if you just turn to Jesus Christ. And that's what I pray that we do. I think this church speaks to us a lot in the day in which we are living in. That there are those who are saying you need to bow the knee to Caesar, to the culture, to whatever. And may we say, I believe in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And a few hours after he said that, he went to the cross to die for us. To die for our sins. And he rose again. And he's at the right hand of the Father. And he's coming back. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this, this lesson here that's so powerful in this church and these few verses. And, Lord, I, I thank you again for those who have come out. So, as we end tonight, Lord, once again, we thank you that we have eternal life that comes in faith in Jesus Christ. I thank you so much that we have a living hope. And, Lord, we know that the Bible is true. And in the day in which we perhaps may be crushed because all of us will go through some sort of persecution or tribulation because we stand for Jesus Christ, help us to be strong. And I, I pray for as a church we, we be strong, that we wouldn't compromise because we are seeing more and more churches that will do that, that they will not stand on the truth, that you are the way, definite article, the truth, and the life, that you are the resurrection and life, that you are the Son of God, and you alone went to the cross and died for us and rose from the grave, because every other religious leader is still in the tomb. Only Jesus Christ rose. We know that he is true, and the word of God is true for us. So, Lord, may it stir our hearts to, first of all, be strong in you, Lord, to stand firm and to speak in truth and love. And Lord, may it cause us to understand and remember that when we are crushed, that we would give a sweet smell and aroma to you. It pleases you. And Lord, strengthen us and help us be a church where we stand by each other because we don't know what tomorrow and the days ahead are going to bring, but it is changing rapidly to where people are becoming more hostile to those of us who stand for the truth of the gospel. And Lord, may we be like those in Smyrna that said that we are not going to compromise, that we are going to stand for truth and we're willing to be burnt at the stake. Maybe we'll get burnt in a relationship or at work or words that, that come against us that burn us and hurt us. But Lord, may we stand true for you. And Lord, I pray that we would encourage one another. Lord, we know that the world is getting more weird and darker. And Lord, it breaks our heart when we see it. People that are in bondage, may it cause us to share the truth in love, to be a testimony and a witness of Jesus Christ to others. So Lord, we thank you. 
And Lord, we thank you for this time tonight. And when we go through these seven churches, it speaks to us as a church, Calvary Chapel. It speaks to us something very important that I pray that we would take home and just give to you. Lord, I thank you that we're here in this generation for such a time as this to be a light to others, to love others and give truth. I pray that we would do that. I pray for outpouring of your Holy Spirit. I, I pray there's a Jesus movement a great awakening that there be a turning to you by those who have come to understand that the world is a ripoff and what they're being told is a lie by the world and that there is bondage and that you care for us and you are saying to us through your word that you love us and you desire to do so much in our lives not only saving us, but being used of you to have that joy unspeakable, that peace that passes understanding. Oh, Lord, do that work in us. Help us to yield to you in every way. Lord, I pray, how I pray for a revival. The people that are hurting, confused, in the dark, blinded by the schemes of the enemy, that the enemy in the world is a terrible, terrible taskmaster, but you are the good shepherd. So Lord, we thank you for tonight. Take everyone home safely. And Lord, may we have joy in our hearts because we are here. In Jesus' name.